0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willets Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. God is always in the business of rewriting stories. And what a great hope that means for each and every one of us. Cheryl and I, uh, quite uh, a few years ago now, more than I would care to even uh, acknowledge, uh, we were camping across country and it was in uh, Arizona. We were camping. It was the middle of the night. It was about a 100 degrees. How, how does that even happen? How can you have a 100 degrees in the middle of the night, and we couldn't understand it. We were dying, and um, someone had the audacity to tell us, yeah, but it's a dry heat. I I don't care. It feels like an oven dry heat, and and we're we're dying here uh, because Arizona is hot. There's a popular hiking trail outside of Phoenix. It's uh, Camelback Mountain. The trek is only 1.3 miles, which is, of course, a piece of cake. It's right near the city, and it means that a whole lot of people underestimate this little hike. But there are warning signs, like serious warning signs. They have, you know, pictures here of, like, people who are, like, about to faint, and they tell you, you know, if your water's at halfway, you've got to turn around and come back because, you know, you're not going to make it, and it's like it's 1.3 miles. Right? Like, what is the big deal? But they try. They try to warn people as much as they can. But a few years back, and this actually happens more often than, um, than, is, uh, than is good, of course. But uh, a few years back, a tourist thought, oh, come on, it's a, it's a little hike. And uh, they went up on the, the mountain, and uh, they ended up uh, dying from heat stroke. And uh, this happens quite a bit throughout Arizona, but even on this mountain. Well, there was a local man who was an experienced hiker. And he spends uh, every day, he's on that trail. And it's not a problem for him. He's conditioned for it. He understands it. He knows to carry enough water with him. But he was on the mountain the day that this tourist died. And it really impacted him. He was significantly moved by it, And he thought, my goodness, I was literally on the mountain. I might have hiked with her. I might have walked past her. I might have seen her. So this was a serious thing for him. It was His name was Scott Cullymore. And so now, Scott hikes this trail, continues his habit of hiking it every day, but sometimes he does it multiple times a day, two, sometimes three times a day. And what he does is he hands out free water bottles to everyone who looks like they need it. And so you'll just be hiking along and you will have underestimated the mountain and you'll realize you don't have enough water and you're flushed and you're red and you're you're slowing down and you're not even sweating anymore because you're so dehydrated. And all of a sudden around the corner, Scott Cullymore will come with a free bottle of ice water. He gives out one or two dozen bottles a day at his own cost. This has earned him the nickname, the water angel, which he says he wishes something was a little more, like, masculine, tougher or something. But, you know, he is the water angel because he is bringing the water that they so desperately need. Countless bottles of water averting how many crisis. Who even knows? Who even knows at this point? Such a beautiful story. Tell me that's not a feel-good story, right? Like, don't you think, that's awesome, the story about a guy who's so impacted he changes he just he out of his own dime and out of his own time he goes and he does what needs to happen in order to help people it made me start thinking asking a question how do the carriers of living water handle the thirsty and the parched people who live in our spiritual desert Jesus came on the scene. He said, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. That's who he is. Later on, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. He's the living water. But how will people hear? How will they know? The Apostle Paul picks this very thing up and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what you need. You need the living water. You call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him. And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So how are we doing? How are we doing handing out living water to parched souls. Sadly, not so good. Recent research study told, tells us that 80% of people who attend church one or more times a month believe they ought to share their faith. That's a great thing. At least 80 I wish it were 100%. But 80% believe they should share their faith. 61% have not in the previous six months. Six months. They, they say they ought to. They just don't ever quite get around to it. 75% of Christians have had less than 10 conversations sharing faith in the past year. We're simply not bringing the spiritual water. Half of Christians admit that they would actually avoid spiritual conversations if it meant that their non-Christian friend would reject them. So we say, you know, we kind of evaluate just in case they might reject. What if they don't like it? What if they get upset? I might lose a friend. So I will refrain from telling them that they need Jesus. 51% of church goers don't believe that sharing their faith is an essential part of the Christian life. Something broke in the Christian psyche in our generation and we have lost... The, the biblical mandate to go, to share, to tell. Blessed are the feet of those who go. This is despite the fact that the majority of Americans would prefer to talk about spiritual matters with a friend. Not a clergy person, not their friend's pastor They don't want to be be watching something on TV. They don't want to to have to read about it on the internet. They want to talk to their friends about these things. We're in this series that we're calling Guess Who? And we're looking at the writers of the New Testament and we're kind of examining their lives to see what it means to live our Christian lives full tilt for Jesus. And today we come to the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is just this amazing character in the scriptures. He was this young Jewish man uh, and he lived a very diverse background. He was from a city called Tarsus which is a Greco-Roman city in Turkey near the Syrian border. And it was a trading center. It was known for the manufacture of goat hair cloth and things like that. But uh, he himself learned to trade. He was a tent maker and he was able to support himself with the work of his own hands. But his real deal was as a religious Jew. he was trained in one of the best schools of the Pharisees of his day and he grew up to become a very young and important leader of the Jewish people. Now you got to remember they were the Jewish people were there in Israel and throughout the region but they were under Roman occupation and rule at the time. But because he became such an important person in the church he also became one of the leading, Uh, in, in the synagogue, I should say, he became one of the leading persecutors of this early Christian movement. And so it was Paul, who, by the way, was also called Saul. Paul was the guy who oversaw the arrest and the harassment and the persecution and even the execution of early church leaders. So he was zealous... And willing to do whatever it took for his faith. But it's also this same guy who ends up bringing the message of Christ to the Roman world. And largely single-handedly launched world missions. Massive, radical change. He ended up being insatiable when it came to sharing God's love with simply everyone that he met. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the ingredients that were sort of mixed together to make Paul such a persistent and persuasive evangelist. The first ingredient is his conversion experience. His conversion involved like, you know, bright light and voice from heaven and being struck blind and, you know, a prophet finding him and all sorts of pretty intense stuff. So let's take a look at it in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Keep a Bible open. We're going to be reading quite a few texts. Normally I like to jump into one text and kind of like peel it apart and stick with it, but because we're looking at the life of Paul, we're going to be looking at quite a few different texts that involve Paul. So please, if you don't have a Bible with you, the ushers are going to come forward and they can hand you a Bible. But uh, so here Paul is Saul still. He's working still to persecute the early church. He's doing everything he can to stamp out this cult. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way... By the way, that's us. The way, that's us. We're the people of the way... Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but... When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Yeah, that's a pretty significant conversion story. That's pretty crazy. But here's the thing. When Paul talks about this, it's not his conversion experiences that matter. You know, it feels like to me, all I'd be able to talk about was the bright light. That, to me, feels like the coolest part of this whole story, you know, the voice from heaven. He'll mention it, of course, but that's not what really mattered. What mattered to him was his experience of conversion, not his conversion experiences. It's less the events around his conversion and more the results of it. So, for instance, we see this in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. It says, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You see, Paul experienced the gospel, his conversion, before he could ever share the gospel. He knew he deserved God's wrath and judgment. But instead, he ends up receiving God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness. He knew that his sinful life and his subsequent forgiveness were going to matter and that other people could even experience things because of it. That they, in fact, could come to know Jesus because of his story. That he, in fact, knew he was a sinner who needed salvation. So he shares the gospel. Now gospel is a word we use, it just means the good news. And the good news is, is straightforward enough in the scriptures that every single one of us is a sinner. Meaning we have rebelled against God and we will not actually find an eternal home with him in our current state. And that means that we will be deserving of God's righteous judgment and experience the consequences now of being eternally separated from God which we call hell. And the only way out of that dilemma, that predicament, is if we have a Savior, because we can't save ourselves. And so we reach out to a Savior, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, I'm that Savior. I'm that one, and because of my death on the cross, you don't have to worry about judgment for your sin. Your sin has already been paid for at the cross, and because of that, you can come into the presence of the Father and be loved and adored. The catch is, of course, Jesus claims to be the only way. If he's the only way, then most of the folks that you know and most of the people that Paul will meet will remain in their sin if they refuse to accept Christ. And this serves as the incredible motivation to get moving and to let people know and to see your life. Because now your life will forever be changed. God is rewriting your story. And now we get to join with the forces of heaven and we get to take back the planet from the forces of darkness. And this means that we get this deep sense of gratitude and love for our Savior. So my question for you here is, have you experienced this? Have you had a conversion experience? It doesn't have to have lights and flashing things and voices or anything like that, but have you had your heart transformed? Do you know that you were once a sinner who needed a savior and now you follow Christ and you trust in him? Because if you haven't done that, then the rest of this is meaningless for you and you are still lost. But if you have experienced this, then you have the foundational ingredient that you need to reach other people. You have your conversion experience. And if you haven't, then please, let's settle that here today. Your second ingredient is your unique background. He was born into Greek culture in Tarsus, but he was raised in the Hebrew religion, and yet he was a Roman citizen, and he had all of these different pieces of his life that were making Paul, Paul. And that means that he was able to adapt to a large and diverse number of people. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Just flip over there. Because we find that Paul, he was able to share with philosophers in Athens and religious Jews in the synagogues and working class pagans in Corinth. He was able to use everything at his disposal... In order to reach more and more people, his ethnicity, his his culture, his education, his trade, it didn't matter. Paul used everything at his disposal. Look at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its Blessing all things to all people that he might save some. You notice how he says he became a servant. He became a slave to everyone else. He figured out what it means to put himself second and everyone else first. So that he could reach them with the message of Christ so that he might win as many people as possible. Is this a category that you have as a follower of Christ? Do you wake up in the morning and do you say, oh my goodness, part of what I am supposed to do in this world is reach as many people as possible. There's a breach that has happened in the thinking of so many followers of Christ. We think this is all about us. We think we come here we get a little bit of a spiritual boost and we get maybe a little bit of encouragement. And hey, you know, that was helpful for my marriage. But do we have a, a waking sense that there are people who are lost and that we might be able to reach them? If we will simply acknowledge that God has made us unique in this world and he's put us in our our positions and he has surrounded us with people in our neighborhoods and he has put us in our families for a reason and everything you have and everything you are is to be used by God so that you might reach as many people as possible. The third ingredient is persistent weakness. And this one I find super encouraging. You see, Paul knew that his evangelistic effectiveness would not come because of clever words or because of his personal strength. God was going to have to work divine power in Paul if lives were actually going to be transformed. So you could open into uh, Bible to 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. 2nd Corinthians 4 7. At one point Paul was even given a thorn in the flesh it's called. We don't know what it was but it, it was given to him so that he would continually suffer in some way so as to keep him humble. Imagine that. A thorn in the flesh so that he would remain dependent upon God. This this sort of persistent weakness marked his ministry. Now, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's you. That's me. We're the jars of clay. We're easily broken. We're often brittle, but God, he pours his treasure into these jars of clay, us, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. In our weakness, God's power and his mercy and his love can be shown to a world that needs to see it. And so often Christians, they decide, what I have to do is I've got to be strong. I have to show people the strength of what I have. And Paul on the other hand are saying, listen, my weakness is how people will come to faith. My dependence. And listen, if that's you, if you're saying, you know, I'm not quite ready to share my faith. I'm not really certain that I have all the right words. I don't know. Do you think you can answer all of the questions that come your way? Do you think you can be persuasive enough to actually turn someone's eternal destiny from hell to heaven? And if you're hearing those things and you're saying, no, I don't think this, that I can do this. If you're saying, you know what? I've been so frustrated because I've shared and they have shut me down. I've tried and I've gotten nowhere. And if that's you, and if you're saying, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. If you feel weak, weak great. That's great news because it's when you're weak that you'll actually depend upon God. That's when you'll go to God in prayer. That's when you will fall on your knees on behalf of your friends and your family who are far from God. That's when you will hold their names up. You'll take your neighbors and you'll take your co-workers and you will go to your prayer closet and you will read them out by name and you will say, God, please change their hearts. Please, reach them. Use me. Give me the words I need. Give me the sacrificial spirit I need to reach them. The fourth ingredient is joyful resilience. This is a great passage. If you could open up to Acts chapter sixteen, verse twenty-two, this is just a a really awesome story because we see that no matter what life throws at Paul, he was able to joyfully press on and keep sharing his faith. He's got this sort of joyful resilience that that in and of itself, just the joyful resilience, it was able to lead people to Christ. Look at verse. Twenty-two Acts chapter 16, verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken and once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose and the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped but Paul shouted don't harm yourself we're all here the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and he fell trembling before Saul and Pil- between Paul before Paul and Silas, and he then brought them out and he asked, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" And they replied, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household." Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. I mean, is that not a spectacular story? Paul's in prison, falsely accused, stripped and beaten with rods. He's thrown into prison. He's shackled in the deepest, darkest cell. And what are Saul and Silas doing? They're singing. They're singing the latest Hillsong album. That was it. It was probably the People album. I'm telling you. And and here they are singing their hearts out. The prison door's open. You'd think the first thing, I would bolt. I had just been beaten. You'd be like, doors are open. Time to go. Clearly God. He's, and this guy's like, what must we do? And Paul's like, you know, let's pick this up another day when I'm not going to be beaten again. Right? Like you'd think that. He's like, no, let's just, we're going to do this right now. Because the suffering doesn't matter. There's a joyful resilience. They're not deterred through opposition. You see, here's the thing, listen, Christian, your your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities in this world. It's against forces of darkness. How many times Christians get upset at people who are far from God, we get snippy, we get judgmental, we get harsh and critical. Are you kidding me? They're lost. What do you expect? A joyful resilience recognizes that our fight is of a different world. So what does that mean for us? Well, in one way, this is really good news because you already have these four ingredients. It's already evident in your life. If you're a follower of Christ, then you have your own conversion experience. That's fantastic. You have your unique background, who you are, what you're made of, and the kind of things that you do, and where you live, and where you work. You have your unique background, and you have a persistent weakness if you have any sense of dependence upon God. Joyful resilience, that might be something you want to think about and work on a little bit, but you know, most everyone has already been able to suffer and come back from it. That's why you're still here, which means this is largely within our reach. So it made me think, if we have all of these ingredients, then why? Why is it that we are failing to share our faith? Why? And I, I came up with a fifth ingredient and I think this might be, I think this might be the reason. Deep compassion, love or a burden for the lost. I think this might be the missing ingredient for many of us. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. The apostles were willing to lay down their lives in order to share the story of Jesus' Love. Paul himself, he said that he would rather be accursed and himself be separated from God so that his people would come to faith. What kind of deep compassion would say, I would rather go to hell if it meant my my family and my people would not. It was the Father who sent his Son, Jesus, to die so that we could be saved. We're told that there's no greater love than anyone has than this, then he laid down his life for his friends, and that was Jesus, Paul himself, executed for his faith. So I have to ask are, you, are we wrestling with hard heartedness when it comes to those who are in jeopardy of hell? Is that the issue? Is that the missing ingredient? Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher and evangelist, he aggressively, he kind of throws it in our face and he says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Why would he say that? Because he's saying, listen, if you have experienced freedom from the fear of judgment and death and hell, if you have experienced that, if your conversion experience is real, then how would you not offer that to others? If you were parched on a mountain and you found water, would you not offer it to the other people who are parched? He goes on to encourage us. He says, If a man has once gained love to perishing sinners, meaning if we have fallen in love with perishing sinners, the saving of souls will be an all-absorbing passion to him. It will so carry him away that he will almost forget himself in the saving of others. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled despite our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. So how do we reach lost people. Listen, you need to take your conversion story. You need to make it your own. You need to understand it. You need to personalize it. Talk to this week. Talk to your Christian friends. Set up a little coffee and just say, "Hey, listen, I want to tell you my conversion story. I want to help you. I want you to help me understand how it's impacted my life and changed me so that I can have my story ready to share." And then look throughout the whole of your life. Examine everywhere and find the people who you can impact. Where are they? Look around. You know, at your work, in your neighborhood, in, in, around your hobbies. Now, you might come away from this little exploration, right? So you're going to share your conversion story. Then you're going to turn around. You're going to look for people. And you might come away from it and say, wow, I have no one in my life. I, like, all my friends are Christians. I'm totally in Christian circles. Then fix that. Make that a priority. Reorder your life in such a way that you will find people who you can impact, and make it a top priority. And then pray for them every day. Develop this dependence. 10, 15 people, put them on a list and lift them up every single day and say, God, I want this person to come to faith. Would you do a work in their heart? Pray, let me be a part of it and tell me what to say and when to say it. Make me open and sensitive. Teach me, Lord, how I can help them Come to know you. How can I offer them the living water? And then most of all, repent of the hard-heartedness that keeps us from sharing our faith. In just a minute, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And maybe today that's during your moment of silence. Maybe that's what we need to do. We're literally going to be sitting at the Lord's table. We're going to be receiving it. We're going to be talking about his death for us. Then what? Let's meditate on his great love for lost people and ask for his compassion and his love to ravage our hearts. Let me pray as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. Father, what we're asking for is that you would do this softening work. Fill us, Lord, with your love. And your compassion. Lord, you've made us uniquely us, and that's beautiful. And you've converted, you've brought us in to the conversion of our souls, and that's fantastic. It's a gift we can never, ever repay. And Lord, we don't need to because you absolutely give us this as a gift of grace. And yet, Lord, what do we do with it? And why are we so hesitant to go and to share your love with others? Why are we so slow to, to offer? the living water to parched souls. Turn our hearts, Lord, now. And and even here today, as we come to this table, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to get your heart, your passion, your love for people far from you. Amen.